0: you'll open your bibles to Matthew 26. We'll be there mostly today. Matthew 26. <clears throat> and we're going to be uh, continuing our walk towards the cross in Matthew. So we're just this year we're going to meditate on the work of Christ and crucifixion and resurrection through the gospel of Matthew. And today I'd like to talk about Judas and the upset, of the, so the role he played uh, in the story. And I guess I, from a practical standpoint, my, my goal this morning is just to revive the story itself in your life so as you meditate on it this week, I believe the story of the death and resurrection of Christ is practical, as a story, that as you retell it, and as you sort of allow it to be in you, this is one of those particular seasons of the year where this story is right in front of us. Um, God works; God speaks through those things. So, I just my goal really is to us to meditate on the story with clarity, and this Judas plays a big part of this in this in the narrative today. Judas is part of what you might think of as an upset, right? He's an insider who sort of turns, uh, t- turns betrayer. There's, there's other big upsets. If you just think about upsets for a second, um, how they happen. The Great Wall of China, when I was um, in grade school, I learned this. It's not exactly accurate. The Great Wall of China lasted many, many hundreds of years over many dynasties and served many purposes. But in one particular dynasty, in the Ming dynasty, you have this Great Wall that's uh, (coughs) protecting uh, China from the Manchu people. And the Manchu army comes down to the Great Wall and they negotiate, and the general of the Ming army signs on with them, opens the door, and lets them in. Like the walls serve no purpose because of intrigue or because of negotiation. I mean, the, the gate was open wide, and the whole Manchu army marched into China. It was an upset. Uh, Alexander the Great. By the time he was 30, controlled, had conquered much of Europe, much of North Africa, nearly all of the Middle East, through Persia, as far as India. Nobody had ever done that. And one night, he had too much to drink, got a fever, and died two weeks later. It's sort of an upset. In the Second World War, the French built uh, this fortification they called the Maginot Line. It was to be an impenetrable fortification. They positioned it where the main avenue of attack that they thought the Germans would come, and they put this towers and gun emplacements and walls and and It was absolutely... unbeatable and the Germans drove around it they agreed they're like man that's unbeatable they went around it and we're in Paris a week later it's an upset how is Judas part of the upset that's what I want us to think about today is there an upset here what's the nature of it the sermon is not, our study this morning is not on the life of Judas. I really, I've never really enjoyed that. Like, I don't have an infatuation with the person of Judas. So we're really not studying all of Judas. What I want us to look at, though, is the role that Judas plays in the story of Christ. Why is it that all of the, all of the writers of the Gospels are concerned to tell us quite a bit about Judas. We know a lot about Judas, or at least this last section, the betrayal. We, we learn a lot about it. I think the, the writers of the Gospels gave us more information about Judas than the Last Supper. Why is that? Why are they so careful to make sure we know how this went down? particularly as it relates to this betrayal. So that's more of our focus this morning. We're going to mostly be in Matthew 26. We'll jump out on occasion. And I will say this. On the subject of Judas, we, most of us have what I would call film theology in us, meaning you saw a movie about Jesus and they did some, they made some decisions, some director's decisions about Judas and you've held on to those as though they're true. It's, It's, Film theology, so like if something doesn't say it like you thought, just just assume for a second that you saw a movie one day it's It's amazing how we believe movies more than the book at times, so it's just a way of loosening this up let's let's look in, in matthew twenty six i 'll give you a little bit of summary. We started this uh, our time in matthew twenty six one which marks really the end of the ministry of Jesus. From 26, verse 1 on, it's the beginning of the end. So all of the details that transpire are details that culminate in the death of Christ and the empty tomb. And it begins with plotting to kill him. Look at verse 3. It says, "In the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest... His name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's what's at work right now. Okay? And last Sunday, Pastor Terry talked about the anointing at Bethany. The anointing at Bethany. And there's really, I'm not going to belabor that section much except to draw out verses 8 and 9. In this anointing at Bethany, a woman, she takes a very valuable franken, you know, incense or anointment, and she anoints Jesus with it. And this is what 8 and 9 say. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Now, Jesus teaches off of that, but that's not... My, my concern. I'd like just to jump down to 14 and 15 because I find that this is an interesting section that follows. Immediately after the anointing in Bethany, this is what we learn. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, I find that's, that's interesting. There's a story about the anointing of Jesus in Bethany, and then the very next sentence is about Judas Iscariot. And the sequencing of that's interesting. Like, how do you go from that to that? And actually, I think the Gospel of John is, is helpful here. This is John chapter 12 that you'll see up on the screen. And I've just excerpted uh, the one or two verses that actually deal with the anointing at Bethany. So this is the anointing at Bethany in John's gospel. He says this, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, now it makes sense. Like, you know, we have to take, I mean, the word comments on the word. So what we know of Judas and John, we bring back with us to Matthew. And what we see here is that this, In Bethany, this sort of conversation, you might imagine the thief Judas is watching a fortune go to waste in his mind that he could have had access to. And it helps us appreciate the sequence of why he would turn in verse 14 and go betray Jesus. Here's the point. Judas was not an ideologue. Judas was a thief. Judas was a thief who had been thieving throughout the ministry of Jesus. Think about that. Think about that. For the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ, three and a half years of knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus in the shade of Jesus, in the footsteps of Jesus, watching his miracles of Jesus, hearing the teachings of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus the questions that came to Jesus, the way he responded to Jesus, the counsel of Jesus, the prayers of Jesus, the love of Jesus. This man for three and a half years had been with that and was a thief. Unchanged. I mean that, that's disturbing. He wasn't Driven, and this is where film theology comes. I don't see any any evidence in the scripture that he was an ideologue, someone who was trying to create an uprising, or he was just a misunderstood person. He was a thief who was thieving. His question to the priests is, "How much?" This is verse four. "How much will you give me for him?" I had a course when I was in college. It was on national security and espionage, and um, the most boring professor I've ever had in my life, without a doubt. I don't think there were, I think 10 minutes was my record of staying awake in his class. 10 minutes. And the tragedy behind it was, he was extremely experienced in the world of espionage. Extremely. He worked for the CIA for his whole career. There were times in class where we'd come and we'd have a guest speaker, and the guest speaker was the former director of the CIA. We had multiple former directors of the CIA in my most boring class of my career. And I slept through them. It was so boring. But there was this one moment, and I know it must have been a moment, because I wasn't awake long. There was this one moment where I was awake, and it was when the professor was taken off of his game, and somebody asked him, like, had he ever recruited a spy? And he said, yeah, that was what I did. I did a lot of recruitment. He turned double agents is what he did. How can you be boring? (laughs) That's like a, that's immoral to be that boring with such a cool life. (laughs) So we, the other, I was actually at the Naval Academy at the time. The other midshipmen in the class were prying him for details. And he shared with us how he turned double agents. And this is what he said. He said, American, Americans who were turned towards the Soviets, historically, did it for gain. Soviets who were turned for the Americans often were ideological. They were principled. The Americans did it for gain. Judas, who is he? He's doing this for gain. We don't need to know everything about Judas. But we are told what we need to know about G- Judas. Okay, that's who Judas is. Let's look at what Jesus knows or doesn't know. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for, uh, for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city To a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. This section starts with this preparations for the the Last Supper, the Passover. And what's interesting about it is Jesus seems to know and see things Beyond what you or I can see. In fact, this section of his life, this last week of his life, Jesus seems to be able to peer into what will happen with greater clarity than the rest of his ministry. You don't, I, I, my impression is, in the other portions of his ministry in the gospel, you don't sense that Jesus has the prescience of, uh, necessarily that he has here. Or certainly it doesn't come out to us. It's not available to us. But Jesus seems to know, hey, you're going to go into town, you're going to meet a guy, just tell him the teacher's coming. It'll all work out. They go in, they say the teacher's coming, it works out. It was the same way with Palm Sunday. He said, go into town, you're going to find a mule, a donkey hitched with a foal that's never been ridden. Don't worry, you just say, I need it, and they'll give it to you. And it all works out. So there's this insight that Jesus has, and that insight carries, carries beyond simply the details of dinner carries all the way into the fact that he knows he will be betrayed. Not only does he know he'll be betrayed, he knows who's going to do the betraying. If you take the Gospel of John and just press it over the Gospel of Matthew, it fills it out a little bit. John 13, and and the passage might be up there on the screen for you, but John 13 describes, and I'll just paraphrase it a little bit, how it actually went down. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me in John, Peter turns to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, and says, and John's sitting next to Jesus because he's the one that Jesus loved. He's sitting next to Jesus, and Peter says, ask him who it is. And I can imagine John, like, reclining back with a side mouth, like, who is it? And Jesus says, watch who I dip the bread with. And he dips the bread with Judas. And in the Gospel of John, he ends up going on to say, he looks Judas in the eyes and he says, What you need to do, go do quickly. And Judas leaves. Jesus is not played, that's not how he dies. He knows. That's the point. This successful plot of the enemy does not succeed because of the element of surprise or that Jesus was outmaneuvered or hoodwinked. He knows exactly what is happening. He knows what's going on, and he he could have bailed. He could have left the city. For some reason, the disciples as they reflect on the life of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and the details that led to it, they they feel incumbent to write down for us with clearly these details. Because you can imagine, you can imagine if we didn't understand things, you'd think, well, how is, how was the Son of God tricked? Was His crucifixion... Are we trying to make... Make his crucifixion look good when in fact it was this disaster. And what what they're telling us is listen, Jesus knew exactly what was happening, who it was going to be, and how it was going to happen. God is not beat by the enemy. Rather, is this growing sense that God is using the conspiracies of the wicked to tell his story. Well, we'll see this a little bit better here in a second. So we know who Judas is. We know what Jesus knew. Here's the question I think is, so who do we see is in control? And if you go to the end of this chapter, to chapter 26, verse 47, I'll pick up there. This is right after the Garden of Gethsemane. So <clears throat> immediately after, in fact, verses 45, Jesus shows sort of his prescience again. He rouses the disciples and says, the time for my betrayal is at hand. And it says, "And immediately, Judas shows up. Right? There's this sense that Jesus knows what's happening. And in fact, it's an interesting point here. By this point in the story, Judas is no longer called a disciple, he's called the betrayer. This is the role he plays. Let me read 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, that's talking about Jesus, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, I think it's worth seeing here that the betrayal is an offense against one in this situation who's not just innocent, but entirely vulnerable. Jesus doesn't put up a defense. He doesn't struggle. He's praying in the garden. In fact, if you think of the just diabolical nature of the plot against Christ, it takes place in the midst of a holy week while he's praying. And he's betrayed with a kiss. I mean, it's dark. It is dark. I, I have in my, my mind... Uh, there's several passages that seem just to overlap one another. One is, early in the Gospels, in the temptation of Christ, when Satan's tempting Christ, one of the Gospels says that at the end of that, Satan departed for another time. There's a a curious statement. In fact, I, I remember reading once, that it translated, he departed until a more opportune time, was the language. And then at the beginning of chapter 26, when the priests and Caiaphas are plotting the death of Jesus, They don't want to do it now because of the crowds, so they want to wait until a different time. And then all of this sort of comes into Judas, right? I mean, this is taking place at night in the midst of his prayer time. I just feel like all the culmination of just the conspiratorial ambition of the devil is reaching right now. And it's reaching towards a man of peace. Let me read again. Let me just read 51 through 56 because it sounds like in 47 to 50, it sounds like Jesus is caught or weak or vulnerable. But then, listen to what it says. Then, this is verse 51, and behold... One of those who were, who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Other gospels will tell us that Jesus healed that. 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples left him and fled. What's presented in one moment as a picture of like righteous weakness or a vulnerability in the face of aggressive evil, in the very next moment, we we hear and see, listen, if it were in the will of God to prevent this, do you not think that God could have prevented this? Do you not think that God could have stopped this? I mean, Jesus himself says it. If I were but to hint to God that I needed help, you cannot imagine what would. But it is God's will that what was written comes to pass. So take me. Who's in control there? I think the guards think they're in control. Maybe even Judas thinks he's in control. But it is only happening because of the great restraint of God. It's through divine restraint that any of this is happening. And it's only happening because it's God's will that it would happen. This is the reason for which Christ came. Okay. Let's just grab those things. Like who Jesus is. Think about what or who Judas is, excuse me. Think about what Jesus knew and the nature of his clarity on the subject, and also think about who's in control here and sort of how do we think about God in the right way. These are some things I think we could we could know or claim. One, God is not doing evil in this story. He's not doing evil. His controlling hand is not authoring evil. In this story, there are evil people doing evil things. The story makes it clear. They are acting wickedly. The notion, and this is, this is the notion, the notion that when you do evil, you somehow escape the sovereign control of God is what's in question. As though when you sin or you walk away from God, you somehow claim liberty from his power. So here we have in this situation, people who are doing evil things and God reigning over it. God in complete command of it, of, of how it will happen. But the hearts of man are what they are. In fact, in, uh, in other gospels, it will describe Judas in this scenario. It'll say that Satan entered into Judas. Which I think when we feel, hear that, it feels a little bit mysterious. It feels maybe fearful. And I, I don't intend to exhaust the mystery of that, Except, except to say that the writers of the Gospels want you to know this is not God doing bad things to make his word come true. This is people doing bad things and God controlling the situation so that his word comes true. Man is wicked, and man will crucify Jesus, even though it's God's will that Christ would die for you. It's still the wickedness of man that's nailing him on the cross. God is, in fact, orchestrating. That's what we see, is that the sovereignty of God in the situation is orchestrating things, to move in such a way that the evil of man ends up doing something that is poetically fulfilling of Scripture. He, in a way, is making their evil, giving some elegance to their evil by making it fulfill the word of God. In other words, this is not a triumph of evil, Evil has been set up to do the will of God. I'll give you an example. As I think about this, I, this week, I've thought to myself, because when you look at how, how easily Jesus falls into the hands of the priests, how easily all of this goes down how from arrest to crucifixion a day a day how does that happen and if you just think about those details by themselves it doesn't even seem like it, it could ever happen but when you realize that god god is behind it orchestrating the events why because jesus ought to die on passover It ought to happen that way. I'll give you an example. Uh, Because I've been thinking about the mind of of the high priest Caiaphas. I don't know why I've been there, but I've been thinking about that. We had a situation in our home about a year and a half ago, or sometime back, maybe two years ago, where my daughter's appendix got inflamed. And when I heard about it, I was way up north of Philadelphia trying to get to seminary. And I'm a fairly punctual person. In all my time in seminary, I was an early arriver. I was one of those people. You arrive early, you, you steal an outlet for your laptop, you get your little nest built. That's, and this was the only, the only class that I had ever found myself late. And I was stuck in traffic. I was going to be like a half hour late. I couldn't believe it. I was stuck in traffic, wondering, this never happens to me. And I get a call from my wife, and she says, we're heading into the ER. Grace's side hurts. And here I was, stuck in traffic to get to seminary, but right near the exit to go home. I was like, man, when does that happen? When am I late? And when am I late? And it plays to my advantage. I jump on, and I get down. It turns out my, my wife and daughter, they get to the, hot, the ER at AI. They get there about 5.30. They get in, checked in by 6, diagnosed by 7. They meet the surgeon at 8. She's prepped for surgery by 9. She's in surgery by 10. She's out by 11. And at 1 a.m., my wife and I and Grace are home asleep. When does that happen? 5.30 to 1. I remember the time exactly because we're so lazy. We have one of those clocks that tells you the time on the ceiling. Because this is hard, apparently. <laughs> but I remember staring at the ceiling, and I saw 1 colon zero zero. And I said to Andrea, I said, we're in bed. When does this happen? When do the circumstances of something so significant, I mean, At 5.30, her appendix was in her. And at 1.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, it was in a jar somewhere being looked at. Like, when does that happen? Well, I've wondered this week. I've wondered this week about Caiaphas, this high priest. For some reason, the same thought has been in my head is, what he must have thought, he must have thought he had won so big on Friday night. I imagine him, like, laying in bed, looking at the clock. He leans over to his wife and says, you're awake? Mm-hmm. You know that guy, Jesus, that heretic? Mm-hmm. We got him today. Good for you, honey. You wouldn't believe how easy it was. We've been sitting here trying to figure out how to do it, and... One of his own people dimes him out. Like, just comes to us. 30 30 pieces of silver. I mean, it was a total bargain. Won't even miss that. Good, honey. And it happened in the middle of the night. I mean, the whole thing went down without a hitch. No crowds, no riots. We we got him. (laughs) We got him when he was praying, if you can believe that. And here's the thing. He didn't even put up a defense. Like we had him in court. He didn't even say a word. Our witnesses, we couldn't even corroborate. I mean, it wouldn't have even gone well for us if he had put up a defense, but he didn't even say a word. Mm Mm-hmm. And hear this. Herod and Pilate got along today. When does that happen? Herod and Pilate got along Yeah. Hmm. Dead before sunset. When does that happen? I can imagine Caiaphas thinking, this must be a special Passover. If he only knew he was set up. All of the evil in the history of the universe was set up for that day. As we head into Easter, may there be a sense of that in us, that everything you've ever done wrong, every wrong thought you've ever had, every ill-laden habit or path you've walked down, You've been set up for grace in Jesus Christ. Your disposition, the things you can't kick or knock, the way you wish you were but can't manage to be, you've been set up for grace in Jesus Christ. There's nothing in you that surprises him. He knows the exact nature of it and he has complete control over it. The only thing that would really be tragic is for you to sit in the ministry of the word for year after year after year and remain unchanged. That would be the only really great tragedy. It might have even be better that you'd never been born. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for the salvation that Christ offers, that it would come to us, those we love, those we know, even, Lord, those we hate. You've called us to love our enemies. You've given us no, no margin to be a people of hate. May we use and rely on your grace so much that we naturally give it away. That it's, it is, it's our response to share with others what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that you and your son were of one mind in all things that while you have not authored evil, you have never lost control and how you've done such good despite it. We pray this, Lord, as we look towards Easter, but it's true every day of our life, but we pray it as we look towards Easter. In the name of Jesus, amen.